Good morning to you, Greg Mackling. Hello. Good, good morning, Brett McGarry. I understand you were sending some text messages yesterday with a fellow sportsing compatriot uh, <laughs> about figure skating. You know what? This figure skating thing has captured the imagination of Canadians of of every stripe, sport fan or otherwise. And to imagine that there are some people who don't see figure skating as a bona fide sport blows my mind. These are some of the greatest athletes on the planet. I always talk about ballet dancers as being probably the best athletes you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to think that maybe figure skaters are even better athletes than ballet dancers because essentially what they're doing is ballet on ice. Yep. And I don't know if it takes more athletic ability to skate than to dance, but it certainly uh, tests some different muscles, and it's incredible to watch. And uh, Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue have got the whole country and maybe the entire world captivated right now. Yeah, everybody wants to know if they're together. Yes. Which I was I pulled up uh, entertainmentweekly.com yesterday and the <laughs> headline story is it. whether or not Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer are together. And uh, they're not. No. But the internet is trying to make them be. Yeah, the, the, it's unimaginable that you might be able to perform that way and seem so connected and not be connected on a, another level. But Let me tell you, lots of people are talking about it, talking about them. And I think the question now has to be asked. They were co-flag bearers in the opening ceremonies. Will they do same in the closing ceremonies? Mm. At least in terms of Canadian athletes, that's never happened before. The same athlete or athletes... Uh, flag bearers in both opening and closing ceremonies, either in the winter or summer Olympics. I don't know if it's happened in other countries, but I did my research this this morning. That's never happened in Canada. I think it's going to happen, though. I don't know who else you would go with. Perhaps the... um we had the the speed skater, was it Boutin, who was getting the threats? Tim Boutin. Yeah, that might be an interesting sort of way to honor her mm-hmm. in the face of what she's dealt with. Uh, well, I'll write that down. I think you might be onto something there. But other than that, I don't really know who else you might go with. I mean, we've had, of course, successes. We had uh, a guy win uh, the gold in the snow in the ski cross yesterday after he fini- he uh, finished fourth, I think, in Sochi. Yeah, he didn't. He so this was kind of a redemption run. But even his gold came in the final. There were two Canadians, and one of them wiped out. Like he, the guy who won the gold, was in the back of the pack, and then the two two of the leaders crashed out. So it ended up he managed to sort of sneak ahead. Not saying that he's undeserving of his gold, but they're just giving an example of hey, good for you, you got a gold, right? But he's not going to be the flag, right? Player. Versus an absolutely mind blowing, world record breaking performance uh, like uh, Moyer and uh, uh, Virtue. Uh, <laughs> You asked me something just as we went on the air, and I'm like, what? You're asking me, what? I don't even know who, who that is. What did you ask me? I said, did Gabrielle Dalen skate yesterday? <laughs> I said, uh, I don't know, and I don't really even know who that is. You are blowing my mind every day with how engaged you are with this Olympic stuff. She's a Canadian figure skater, by the way. She finished seventh. I'm just looking at the the highlights here. She finished seventh. In the short program, there is a Canadian in third place, though. Caitlin Osman in third place. Two Olympic athletes of Russia are in first, including uh, 15-year-old Alina uh, Zagidova. 
I'll have to consult with Christian O'Mell on how to pronounce her name. Probably not a bad idea. Hey, uh, question. Did you call the passport office or the uh, officials, uh, Canadian officials in, in South Korea? Have you had Rachel Holman's passport revoked? <laughs> Will she be Don't allowed home. back into the country after your, after your statement last week that when you play curling, when you curl for Canada, play hockey for Canada, men's or women's in both sports, you expect a medal. And in fact, we kind of expect a gold medal in all those sports. Rachel Holman is not even going to get the opportunity to compete for a medal. She was eliminated by Great Britain's Eve Muirhead last night. Yeah, the pre- Pressure. I just I I would not. Obviously, athletes relish the the opportunity to compete at the highest level, but the pressure on the curlers and the hockey players in particular must just be astounding. Not just from the sense that an entire country is not just hoping you finish gold, but depending on you, counting on you to to win nothing but gold. And then on top of that, all of the other teams are gunning for you because you're the top dog, right? Everybody brings their best when they they take on the best. And uh, to see her come up so short is kind of sad, but it's still a, you know, good showing, just not, uh, she was outplayed. She was outplayed. Great Britain again, when I saw who her opponent was last night, I thought, ooh, Eve Muirhead. That's not exactly uh, run-of-the-mill. She's always in the mix internationally, so, yeah. You heard of Michaela Schifrin? The name, uh, 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 yes, the name rings a bell. American Skier. Okay. American Skier. Her boyfriend is uh, Matthew, and we think it's Favre. Okay. It's like Brett Favre, but he's got an A in there between the, uh, or pardon me, an I between the A and the V. F-A-I-V-R-E. Favre, we were going with. Okay. Uh, He was kicked off. (laughs) He was booted off the French Olympic team for a lack of team spirit. Really? Yes, following his race where he finished 10th. A reporter asked him how he felt about his run, and he said he wasn't really uh, very happy happy about it. Uh, When asked to describe my feelings on the race 10 minutes after I'd crossed the finish line, only my performance and my failure were present. He had won a gold medal in the team event at last year's World Championships, and uh, he didn't really care that his teammates had done really well. <laughs> Alexis uh, Pinutro won a bronze medal behind Austrian uh, Marcel Herscher in the race, and two other Frenchmen, Thomas Fanera and Victor Mouffaut, or Mouffaut Jandet, uh, finished fifth and sixth. Uh, that didn't seem to be of any consolation to Favre, who was uh, really only angry about the fact that he had finished. Uh, out of contention and was uh, ready to uh, to go home and and well he got called out on that and the French said you're off the team yeah <laughs> goodbye uh, in one on one hand it's kind of refreshing to see that sort of honesty right because often athletes are are asked questions and you can tell that they they're sticking to some it's like politicians right sure. athletes very much or coaches have to stick to these talking points yeah. and anytime you get real emotion or real honesty it's kind of an event. Where, oh, hey, this person is speaking no filter. They're just telling us what actually is on their mind. And, yeah, he was probably grumpy that he didn't do well and uh, spoke honestly. I don't care about them. I did bad, and I came here for me. He won't be carrying the French flag in the closing (laughs) ceremonies. He won't even get to participate. If you've seen Bull Durham, you know the part of the movie where where, uh, Kevin Costner uh, teaches... uh, uh, Rock, uh, what is it? Was it Rock Lelouch? Yeah, the cliches, as they say in America. Now we got to work on your cliches. You have to learn your cliches. 
You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. They're your friends. Write this down. We gotta play them one day at a time. I'm just happy to be here. Hope I can help the ball club. I just wanna give it my best shot. And the good Lord willing, things will work out. Pretty boring. Of course it's boring. That's the point. Write it down. Write these down because this is don't go off script is basically the message in your post-game commentary because it could get you into trouble. Skyrocketing real estate and rental markets across much of the country have some families choosing small spaces over suburban sprawl and finding unexpected benefits in the next hour. We will be talking with a Winnipeg artist about why she and her family have chosen to live in a small home and how they manage with a shortage of space. So today we're having coffee talking. Could you live comfortably in a small space? And Jeff Braun, I want to start with you. I've been to your place before. I wouldn't describe it as small, but... 750 square feet. Yeah, that's a decent uh, for, a, for one guy. Yeah. But you have an interesting uh, sort of uh, philosophy regarding stuff. Uh, less is more. I'm becoming a minimalist over the years, as it turns out, I throw stuff away and I don't go shopping. Okay. So, <laughs> so does that? Do you find that that lack of clutter really oh, makes yeah. a difference? Absolutely. You just if you don't have stuff lined up against every single wall all the way through, it's bound to feel a little bit roomier. Yeah. Yeah, but I was lying in bed just yesterday reading a book, looking around my room, thinking, man, I have a lot of junk. <laughs> I need to get rid of all this crap. And uh, I think, even, like, I have a 550 square feet, so it's not gigantic. Yeah. But it's more than enough, I think, for one guy, provided there isn't a ton of stuff. And I am at that, I think I am at that kind of precipice where if I were to get any more stuff, I'd be running Do out. Do your parents have a basement? They you, like, the, get a few boxes and store stuff over there? Uh, it's already jam-packed. Yeah, okay. My, mom, my anything, mom's also a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> I got my hair cut yesterday, and I was speaking with uh, the young woman who cut my hair, and her and her boyfriend just bought a house, and her dad was very congratulatory on the fact that they were buying a house. And uh, I can't use the language he used with her, but basically it was, and make sure you take all your stuff with you. <laughs> because that's a habit I think all of us have uh, have taken advantage of at some point, moving out of home and leaving a bunch of our crap behind. Shanalee Vidal, have you got stuff, stuff stored at uh, places other than your own residence? Uh, well, I don't have much stored with my mom because now she, she sold a family home and lives in an apartment. But I do have about... 30 or 40 boxes of books and other oh stuff goodness. in my boyfriend's basement. Mm-hmm. Maybe some things in his shed. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of books? Like f- just like fiction books? Yes. Yeah. Don't you have a house? Yeah. What? It's small. <laughs> it's small. Okay, hold on. How small is it? Um, maybe 780. Okay, so here, I'm a family of four. You're 750 yep. times four. That's 3,000 square feet. For four people, you're 550. That's 2200, bigger than my house. How big's your house? I think it's 780. 780, 560. Something like that. Yeah. All these numbers, I have no idea what's yeah, going on. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I would say I would say your house is proportionately larger than my house is for four people. But some of your people are smaller. Well, <laughs> you've met my kids. They're not that much smaller than you. They're thin though. Twin towers. Yeah, twin Those towers. Yeah, they are. That's true. Uh, Christian. Well, I came from Ontario, so all my stuff's still kind of there. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sure, 
Uh, yeah. With your mom or your dad? <laughs> both. Okay. My parents have both moved from homes that I grew up in, so there has been a downsizing process already, but they've still got totes in their basement. I, every time I go home, I go through them, get rid of a little bit more. I'm very bad at getting rid of stuff. Um, but in terms of size here, the, I'm in my fourth apartment in three years in Winnipeg. The first place I lived in quite kind of on my own, but it wasn't. It was like an Airbnb, so I basically had a bedroom to myself for three months. And then I moved into an apartment that's probably the square footage of this studio that we're in right now. It had a bedroom, it had a living room, it had a kitchen, but it was the size of this studio. And I'm 6'5". I had no breathing space in that place. I lived there for a year in the West End. It was a terrible apartment. <laughs> I don't know how many square feet it was because I don't, I don't actually know the concept of square footage. I should probably <laughs> learn math. But now I'm in an apartment with a lot of space. And the clothes pile up, and I don't have to move them because I have enough room to walk around my dirty clothes. Now, <laughs> Isn't that the best? That's so great. <laughs> now, the so mom great. we're going to meet has five kids, right? And so they live in a house under 1,000 square feet. Now, that's tight living. Jerry, I could see you as a minimalist. I, you know what? I, I'd like to think so, but other people who know me would say not. Mm. Um, I have a collection and it takes up a big amount of space, uh, a bunch of Superman stuff, and none of, none of it's out right now. It's all in boxes in my house. Um, but uh, I mean, the, when I before I moved to Manitoba, there was three of us living in a house, and it was nine hundred and fifty square feet. So uh, I can't imagine having two more bodies in that. Yeah, at all. no, exactly. That yeah, it it was tight then. Could you go smaller, Jeff? Uh, I don't think so. I, don't, I, I could, but like, I got a really big bedroom and I only use it for sleeping, so. I'm the same way. I literally yeah. have a bed in the middle of basically an empty room. Yeah, exactly. That's it. The, the <laughs> trick is you got to strike when the iron, when every now and then you get that, that ruthless feeling is where yeah. it's just like. I, I've, Purge? Uh, yeah, and I have no connection or emotion attached to any of my stuff, and that's when you just start throwing stuff out. Yeah, and the next day you regret it or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, <laughs> get, a, danger, get, that's that. a dangerous place oh, to get. But I have gotten rid of some chunky things, you know, in the past year. Chunky? You big things that take up space, you know, like old TVs. You post okay. those things. Plural? About, you Plural? Post, the, the old TVs. Old TVs. You had a collection, you had a collection of old TVs? Are they like uh, four feet deep tube TVs? Yeah, yeah. And you post it on Kijiji, right away those people will be at your house for Unreal. those free TVs. You put them on the edge of your driveway, nobody picks them I up. I know, but Kijiji. And then like, I got rid of my mom's old one because we bought her a new one. Like within two and a half hours, it was gone. Wow. And then I have a big old armchair that uh, is like from the 90s. Everyone had them in the 1980s and it takes up so much space. So I, I got to wait in my kitchen. I'm going to... Get it ready and... So one of these tiny houses would not be an option for you, I'm thinking, Shanley. <laughs> no. Do you, like, Jackie and I will look at the beginning of that show and go, why? Why do you want to do this? But there are people that are doing, living in these tiny houses. I don't get it. Some people don't like stuff. I'm too claustrophobic. Well, and that's one of the big things you see now in advertising for apartments or condos, the word boutique, mm. I find coming up. <laughs> just that's that's is that what that means? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just means, it means a tiny. A cute boutique unit. But it's become a popular thing that get to, is boutique living. Well, I, I used to actually write uh, the, the descriptions for a real estate agent when they would list the houses. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and 
I use the word cozy quite a bit. Yeah, cozy. <laughs> <laughs> Intimate. I once said that to a friend uh, about his house, which is actually quite sizable. I, and I didn't mean it as an insult because it's a cozy home in the West End where each room kind of feels cozy, but he just has many rooms. And he took it as an insult. He said, hey, hey, <laughs> this place isn't cozy. I said, I'm not saying it's puny. It's just, you know, it's very welcoming. And I kind of like that uh, that sort of warm, cozy feeling that an older home provides. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm in love with a- any place where I can bring and pack and hide more stuff. So more square footage, the better for me. That's just the way I am, unfortunately. Is it really the size that counts? Uh, and when you're hauling around all the junk I've been hauling around for 30 <laughs> years, you gosh darn right it is. 204-780-6868. You can send us your texts on what you think and if you have any space-saving tricks. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made a ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes just the same. Behind the Glass, Jerry, with another gem. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you until 10 o'clock this morning. CJOB earlier this morning, we were having coffee talking about small spaces and tiny houses and all the stuff that we have and could we function in a smaller home than what we currently live in. It's a discussion a lot of people are having right now, Brett. Yep, some Canadian families have found a way to deal with rising housing prices by choosing smaller spaces. We referenced earlier, there's uh, one, there's a story here that uh, was put together by uh, Global News that a uh, family of six, actually, I re- earlier referenced it, a family of five, but it's a family of six. Adrian Crook lives with his five kids in a 1,000 square foot condo in downtown Vancouver. Uh, this has to do with uh, wanting to choose smaller living over suburban sprawl. And, it, and then as it turns out, they found unexpected benefits as a result of being in downtown Vancouver. It's easier to walk to parks. But, uh, there are galleries and libraries that are nearby. It teaches the kids about diversity that they may not see in the suburbs. So that is all rather interesting. Winnipeg artist Shelley Vanderbilt's family of five also lives in a 950-square-foot house. The artist says the lack of floor space has required a floor space has required flexibility and constant shuffling, but it's also taught her kids about creativity, problem solving, and conflict rev- resolution. Shelly joins us live on 680 CJOB, and Shelly Greg is chuckling as I say <laughs> conflict resolution. Exactly, <laughs> Shelly. Good morning. Good morning. I'm the father of twin boys, and we actually moved because our boys shared a bedroom up until they were about two and a half years old. And then once we put them in the beds and took them out of their cribs, they would have this tendency to wake one another up. So Uh, conflict resolution uh, took the form of a house with one extra bedroom. How do you deal with stuff like that? Um, well, we, we use all the rooms we do have. I mean, we're as adults, we're not sleeping in our bed until about 10 o'clock at night. So up until then, someone else uses that bedroom. And then we just have to carry the sleeping child back to their bed, which is really cute, actually. But um, just the one that we picked to sleep in our bedroom is getting quite heavy now. So it's, it's pretty comical if I have to move her by myself. Shelley, what kind of an artist are you? I, I'm a painter. I do tiny little oil paintings and vintage medicine tins, and then I do um, bigger fresco paintings with plaster that are about like breakage and repair and scars and healing. Yeah. 
do you have a separate studio for this endeavor? I can't imagine you're you're combining this along with your living situation, or maybe I'm wrong on that. No, I I um, it's really great because it's allowed me the flexibility to have a studio outside the home, which the frescoes like I can't do in our home. They're really big and really messy, but the miniatures I can do in our space. I can do them with the little table the size of a bedside table. So. Yeah, I we've found ways to make things work. Yeah, I mean, 950 square feet. It's not like uh, you're living in a in a cardboard box. But you know, oftentimes we see on television, and I always kind of chuckle about this, particularly when they're uh, portrayed as uh, starving artists or what have you, the stereotypical uh, starving artist. But yet they still manage to live in these big, wide open lofts. You know, you see paintings kind of <laughs> scattered scattered all over the place. Have you ever lived in a space like that? Um, I haven't lived in a big loft, but I, I lived in a really large house once with a bunch of other girls um, before I was married. And it was 3,500 square feet. It was this mansion. It was so beautiful. Um, but everybody flocked to the kitchen whenever we had people over. They always wanted to be around the table that only sat four. And people have this tendency to just want to huddle in and be close to each other. So Knowing that and having experienced that, I thought, why build the big space anyways? So that, the the, there's a little bit of affirmation there, right? And confirmation that, yeah. that your belief that the smaller place can br- bring us closer together. Was this out of ch- by choice or by necessity uh, economically? Why did you decide to, to go down this road, Shelley? Well, we started off just wanting a little house that we could fix up the way we wanted and we could do that. Um, on a smaller scale with our budget at the time. And then our family kept growing and we didn't want to move. We just sort of used creativity and kept finding ways to fit another kid in and move things around. And once we'd already done that uh, with two kids, adding a third was just like more of what we were already doing. Our guest is Shelley Vanderbill. She is a Winnipeg artist. Her family of five lives in a 950-square-foot house, and we're talking about how some Canadian families have found a way to deal with rising housing prices by choosing smaller spaces. And, Shelley, i, I got to ask you, uh, 3,500 square feet, you said you lived in this home with a bunch of other uh, young women. How many people were you living with? Um, I was living uh, at the most four. At times, there were three of us. Wow. Uh, But yeah, it was a a beautiful, beautiful home. And the man who had been living there went and married his neighbor down the street. So he just wanted some people to take care of his home. So uh, I was a drywall taper. So he thought, well, I trust you to leave it in good condition. You were a drywall taper at the time. Yeah, that that sort of led into the frescoes and um, and working with that medium later on. So tell me, uh, with that experience and that contrasting experience, that's essentially 950 square feet to yourself. Do do you yearn for that? Um, Well, I've I've got a fairly large space at the studio that I share with other people, but I do have a lot of space around me there because it's not divided. So, um, yeah, sometimes I like those big spaces, but I do get that while making my artwork. 
So, so what are some of the what what sort of tips could you give someone who is maybe pondering the idea of downsizing a little bit? Have you have you gotten good at uh, doing certain things to make your uh, smaller space more functional? Yes, yes. If you notice, it's quite quiet while I'm having this interview. It's because we've gotten really good at sharing houses with our neighbors. So my three kids right now are over having breakfast at the neighbor's house. And the neighborhood that you live in, um, if you were to go for a, a bigger home, if you decide, you know what, we need a bigger space, would you have to leave the neighborhood that you're in? Uh, well, it depends on how much bigger. Like, we're in St. James, and we really wanted this neighborhood because it's close to my husband's work, and he can walk to work. We can have one vehicle. It's just better for the environment. And... Um, I really like this neighborhood. I like the small houses. I like the, the fact that houses have been here for a while, and uh, it just feels really integrated. I always marvel when <laughs> visiting New York, the whole idea of having the grocery store on the corner and people living in these very small spaces. But, you know, when you have everything at hand outside of the home, you don't have to store things you you have uh, at your disposable uh, disposal, pardon me, everything you could possibly want, it, it changes the di- dynamic a little bit. And I think that uh, our neighborhoods are, are starting to, to recognize that, that you don't need to have uh, a giant garage or a giant shed to, to store your cereal. <laughs> you, you, you should yeah. be able to, to have it at the corner and have it easily on hand when you need it, on demand almost. Yeah, yeah. It's really walkable, this area. And yeah, it's really great. We we really like it. Shelly, thanks for uh, bringing us uh, into your world a little bit, and thanks for uh, shipping the kiddos next door for a little bit of <laughs> breakfast, and appreciate uh, you making time for us today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right, you too, Shelly. Once again, Shelly Vanderbilt, her name. She is a Winnipeg artist, family of, of five, living in a 950-square-foot house in St. James. One example of a Canadian family choosing to stick with a smaller space to combat rising housing prices. Authorities report they've thwarted a student's plot for a mass shooting at a Southern California high school. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department says a security guard at El Camino High School in Whittier overheard a disgruntled student threaten to open fire on the school last Friday, just two days after 17 people were gunned down at a Florida high school. Police tell the Associated Press that deputies discovered multiple guns and ammunition after searching the student's home. Now, many of those survivors of the Parkland, Florida school shooting are now trying to make a difference in a campaign called Never Again. One of those students is 17-year-old John Barnett. Yesterday, 680 CJOB's Julie Buckingham spoke with him while he was on a bus to Tallahassee. We want to tell you and and all of your classmates and, and school members how sorry we are as Canadians. It's an unspeakable tragedy you've You've all endured. You deserve to be heard. The victims need to be heard and remembered. And, you know, Richard has kids that have graduated. And as I told you, I have a 17-year-old that is in high school, something we never want them to experience. But we're so proud of the teenagers that you are who refuse to be dismissed. And you're rising up and taking action. Tell us what you're doing today. Um, well, first off, I just want to say 
Canada as a whole has been such a big support, and you guys have been flooding in love and support, and we're just so thankful. But this movement um, is really special to us because we want change. We're advocating for for movement. We want steps forward. And usually um, the government dismisses us because um, we're teenagers. They don't think we know anything, but we really need to step to the forefront. We need a, We were the ones who experienced this tragedy, and we know it's not right. They're just here to profit off the NRA, and they care more about their money they're getting from the NRA than they're getting uh, than they're saving children's lives. Tell us about today. Um, today, a bunch of us, about a hundred of us, are going up to Tallahassee. We're meeting with a bunch of lawmakers, senators, to get a, get our voices heard, to talk to them face to face, so they can't hide from us. And yet, today, state lawmakers voted down an attempt to revive a bill to ban assault rifles. How frustrating is that for you? It's really frustrating because after all this hard work, if in general, and also with uh, us being teenagers and this movement, we can't see how they are viewing this at a different angle. Because if anyone has a heart, they can realize that children's lives are more important than money. You're not going away, are you? No, we're not backing down until, until change is made. Tell us about the hashtag and the movement. Okay, well, the hashtag in the movement was um, founded by Cameron Kasky and a close-knit um, group of us consisting about of 19 members. And we're here spreading the word, spreading the message, because we want this to get as big as it can be. We need as many supporters as we can. And with, with Never Again in the movement, we're also in conjunction uh, with the March for Our Lives, which we urge everyone to start their own march in their own city to show the support, to show to the government and Congress that this is a force, this is a force to be reckoned with, and there's supporters backing us. How are you and the others handling handling the shooting? See, a lot of us, um, I feel like, are channeling our grief and our anger into this movement because... A lot of us have decided instead of sitting at home and grieving and thinking about the lives we have lost, the classmates we've seen every day, we want to put their lives, we want to honor them, and we want to prove to them and to everyone else that this should never happen again, and we are going to be the last, um, we're going to be the last shooting of, uh, in America because of this, because of the last mass shooting in America, because this uh, movement is going to be at the forefront and we are, we need change. 17-year-old John Barnett, one of the survivors of the Parkland, Florida school shooting, part of a campaign called Never Again, in conversation yesterday afternoon on 680 CJOB with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. And about the same time Julie was having that conversation, Brett, uh, news broke out of Florida that an aide to a Florida House lawmaker was fired on Tuesday after he said, get this, that the Parkland students who were speaking out on gun control after last Wednesday's mass shooting were paid actors. Okay. This is just uh, some of the ridiculousness that happens in the United States in the 
aftermath of situations like this. There's always a conspiracy, always a conspiracy theory. There are people who have spread the conspiracy theater that Newtown was a conspiracy and never happened. And there have been documentaries made to try and prove that. And so, uh, once again, a, a despicable sort of uh, approach to, to this and an answer to something that's going on in your own backyard. Republican Sean Harrison tweeted a comment that he didn't agree with the insensitive and inappropriate comments made by his aide, Benjamin Kelly. Uh, the claim that, uh, these, uh, that these young people are, in fact, actors. Kelly later tweeted that he'd been terminated and said it was a mistake to make the claim in an email to Tampa Bay Times reporter, Alex Leary. One, two, three. It's time for Three Things with Shanalee Vidal. Three things that have to do with food. Oh, goody. Just as we reach our lunchtime here. Uh, four hours into That's our show. That's right. It is, it is lunchtime for us. Yeah. So uh, I guess I should say happy lunch hour, Brett and Greg. <laughs> wow. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. My sandwiches are now calling me from the fridge down the hall. Uh, peanut allergies are a big deal. We have uh, friends who one of their sons has a severe peanut allergy. Uh, some good news here, potentially, in your first thing? Some good news, because especially those peanut allergies can be very, very serious. But uh, now some help could be on the way for millions of children who suffer from peanut allergies. Uh, California-based Amune Therapeutics says it has developed the first treatment to help prevent serious allergic reactions to peanuts. Doctors have been testing daily doses of peanut flour contained in a capsule and sprinkled over food to help, uh, to help sensitize children to nuts. And they reported 67% of kids who had the treatment could tolerate about two peanuts at the end of the study, compared to only 4% of those who were given a dummy powder. That's that's a pretty big deal. Well, that's substantial, right? Yeah. Because now that's kind of an extra layer of protection. And that means, you know, you still have to have your EpiPen, but the chances of you going to into shock over this would be greatly reduced. Exactly, exactly. So so I hope that uh, we hear more about that in the in the coming months and years. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one for sure. What's number two? Number two. So I know many of us have gone through this. So uh, we've tried to lose a few pounds, you know, especially over the winter because I think we tend to, a lot of us tend to pack up on, on the pounds and then we think, oh, it's already summer and I, sh- I should be losing weight. So uh, some of us try things like uh, maybe eating low carbs, cutting out the bread, counting calories. I had one friend who would eat a cup of blueberries and she would she would li- had three left over from her container because they did not fit into the cup. And so she didn't want the extra calories, which. Oh, so if it didn't fit in the container, they, it she did not, did not consume them. It was them. not measured. Yeah. Was she a fruititarian? Uh, no, I no? don't think so. That's what St- Steve Jobs was a fruitarian. I, I didn't know that. Part of what may have killed him. Anyway, we digress. Uh, anyways, researchers at Stanford University say they've uncovered what really makes a difference when it comes to weight loss cake, but this shouldn't come as a big oh. surprise because they say, get this. Yes. It comes down to healthful eating. Uh, no way. Really? Who would have predicted really? that? So now previous research suggested insulin levels or certain genes could interact with different types of diets, such as low fat or low carb, to influence weight loss. And the Stanford scientists found weight loss averaged about 13 pounds over a year, regardless of genes, insulin and diet type. And say people who ate the fewest processed foods, sugary drinks and unhealthy fats lost the most weight. So just stay away from the junk. So I... Probably shouldn't have had pizza last night or the night before or the night before that. 
Well, it does have vegetables on it, doesn't it? No, I got the carnivore. It's all meat. <laughs> Tomato sauce. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Well, speaking of, of uh, meaty things, or, yes. or I guess yes. sort of the meat of the sea. Yes. <laughs> Is that lo- lobster? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are, uh, is uh, what I'm going to talk about next. Uh, there's about 150 new emojis coming out this year. Oh, we do- can't get enough of, of the emojis. Oh, we can't, including a new lobster emoji. Oh, time. But here's the problem. That lobster has raged much ire among lobster lovers. Emojipedias, yeah, that's that's a real that's thing. A thing. <laughs> that's a thing. Emojipedias chief emoji officer is now taking action after residents of Maine protested about the design of that upcoming lobster emoji oh, because it had only eight legs, not ten. Oh my! It was wrong. It was a huge mistake. And Jeremy Berg uh, says the Unicode Consortium. Uh, he's also of uh, the Unicode Consortium. He's also the chief. Emoji officer at Emojipedia. Yes. That sounds like a fun job. Uh, he heard the complaints and he's going to release updated designs for the lobster emoji as well as updates for uh, a skateboard that uh, that they want to improve on and a DNA emoji later this year. Okay. Yeah, I'm taking and, a look at this old one versus the now the one that they plan to release as the update. I could see the 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 first one was kind of disturbing look, looking as though it didn't have any rear legs here. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah, I could see why the people in Maine were upset. I was wondering why they'd be so so worked up about this. So I get it. He says we heard you. We made some mistakes. We're fixing them now. Unicode is responsible for supplying uh, the sample image, like that lobster that's going to have ten legs, uh, for the different emojis to uh, Apple, Google, and other companies get to finalize them for how their emojis will look so they use i guess they use the blueprint also i saw on the list there's like a peacock emoji a roll of toilet paper coming out or something look like a paramecium i think uh, i'm getting it right did, how did they take so long on the tp emoji i i don't know i was shocked they didn't already have that because you have the the poop emoji yes it makes sense you have the toilet paper emoji kind of them both together they should be right beside yeah. one another yeah well we could have problems so Shanley Vidal, three things with Shanley. <laughs> Today it was about food, oh, peanut analogies, precision dieting, and lobster emoji. Thank you very much, Shanley. Prime Minister Trudeau said on Monday his government is considering a paid leave option for new dads and other non-birthing parents. I don't know if I've quite heard it phrased that way. Well, and here, let's get some context to what he's talking about. This is based on comments that he made on Monday while in India. Here's, it's just over a minute long. Uh, Before we introduce our guest from the Vanier Institute for the Family, let's hear what the Prime Minister has to say. When we allow and continue to accept that there are barriers to women's success built into our system. Some of them are overt, uh, sexism, discrimination. Mm. Uh, Some of them are more subtle, just the fact that women have uh, an expectation laid on them that they will be much more involved in raising kids. Uh, That that challenge uh, of looking at two CVs, one of a man, one of a woman, will lead to different decisions by uh, a uh, by a manager, by whoever's doing the hiring, which is one of the reasons why, yes, we're moving forward on pay equity legislation, but we're also looking at other things. I've talked about mandatory, like not just maternal leave, but parental leave with potentially uh, mandatory or, or leave that can only be taken by the second parent, in most cases, uh, the father. So it's either a use it or lose it. And as soon as you're, taking, you're creating a leave opportunity that 
use it or lose it, the second parent or the father uh, in many cases, or uh, the, 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 uh, the second partner in, in uh, LGBT marriage or uh, you know, whatever, whatever format you have, that path is removing some of the barriers and the obligations and the expectations uh, that hold women back in the workforce. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking in India, sort of planting a seed mm-hmm. that the government is considering a paid leave option for new dads and other non-birthing parents. The idea would be similar to Quebec's parental leave system that provides up to five weeks of paid leave to new fathers, covering up to 70% of their income. We'll have to wait and see until next Tuesday to see if that's included in the federal budget, but we don't have to wait to find out if this would be a good idea and something uh, that would be good for Canadian families. To have that discussion, we've invited Nora Spinks, CEO of the Vanier Institute for the Family, to join us, and she was kind enough to accept our invitation. Good morning, Nora. Good morning. We appreciate your time today, and uh, tell us, what what do you think uh, of this initiative and this conversation uh, that's now being held out in the open, thanks to the Prime Minister's comments? Well, you know, we're really not sure what's going to be in the budget, but what we do know is that this government has stated on several occasions its commitment to uh, eliminating barriers to women's advancement in the workplace, to helping families achieve work-life balance, um, to achieve equity across provinces and across jurisdictions. So they've already made some significant changes to the EI program, the Employment Insurance Program, in December. So they went from a 12-month maximum leave to an optional 18-month extended benefits period. They added a brand new family care leave, recognizing the significant role that families play in providing care to those who are ill or injured, particularly in response to our aging population. Um, We recently saw them expand the compassionate care benefit for those who are looking after people who are at end of life from an eight-week program to a six-month program. So they've been looking at ways of adjusting and modifying the EI program that's available outside of Quebec um, since they got into power. And so right now it makes sense that if they're going to continue to increase accessibility and availability of these programs, that paternity leave is the next logical step. Now, Nora, I don't have kids, so I'm not super familiar with how this works, uh, the idea that I might need to take time off to take care of my children. But can't dads already, like dads already have the ability to take a whole bunch of time off, right? Well, right now, fathers have, so we have maternity leave, which is birth mothers only. Then we have parental leave that's available to any parent or legal parent, whether it's adoptive parent or uh, first or second parent. And that parental leave needs to be split between the parents. What it doesn't compensate for is, say, a single parent, so Either they take it all or they leave benefits on the table. If um, you don't qualify for EI, then you don't have access to any benefits. And so when we look at the leaves related to families, dads do have access to parental leave, but they have to negotiate and sometimes wrestle that away from uh, the mothers. 
who want to optimize and maximize, in most cases, the amount of time that they have away. For dads, it's also about income replacement. And so if you're earning the same or more as your spouse, then sometimes it's affordability question. Um, do you want to take the time off? We do see that when women are the higher income earner in the household, men are more likely to take advantage of uh, parental leave because it is a cost uh, decision that families make. And every family is unique and every family has to choose between time or money. So money in the paid labor force or money related to uh, the benefits that they might have access to, and time. How much time do they want to spend dedicated with their newborns? So, yeah, they have access. But what we know from the Quebec experience is when you have dedicated paternity leave, use it or lose it, more men use it. They don't want to leave that benefit on the table. It normalizes the experience, the expectation from mothers, fathers, and employers is that dads are going to be taking this uh, leave. So when dads do take advantage of it or do have access to it, many more take advantage of it. So if you look at Quebec, over 80% of new dads take paternity leave. If you look at the rest of Canada, only about 30% of new dads have a share in parental leave. Now, that doesn't mean that outside of Quebec, dads aren't involved with their newborns. What they tend to do is they tend to use vacation time or they tend to um, bank overtime or find some other way to squeeze that time in. The other thing we're seeing with new dads is that this is a different era. And when moms used to come home from hospital with a newborn, they need care and baby needs care and mom needs support to provide that care to baby. And typically that role was played by a grandparent, her mother or his. And today that's highly unlikely because those grandmothers today are baby boomers and are in most cases in the paid labor force when they become grandmothers for the first time. And so they're not available to provide the care or with all of our mobility and parents and grandparents living in, you might have the grandparent living in Winnipeg, but the parents living in Regina. And so it's a proximity issue and they're just not available. So the dads are stepping in and stepping up and uh, fulfilling that role admirably, either by choice or by circumstance. Uh, Nora, I think I can connect the dots in terms of the benefits to the overall economy because that's the way a lot of people will look at it, right, in terms of this as being an investment for for everyone. But there are some people who are not going to be sure about those benefits. And, of course, we run out of time just as we, we uh, want to get into this part of the conversation. Maybe we should uh, press pause there and uh, have you back in the next few days to talk about the overall benefits to the economy and, and why this is an investment that we should be cons- considering making always happy to come and talk to you and you know this one we've got lots of data on and we know it's a win-win-win for 
families, for individuals, for society, for the economy. So happy to come back and talk to you anytime. We appreciate that very much. Nora Spinks, she's CEO of the Vanier Institute for the Family. And again, we were talking about how Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Monday said his government is considering a paid leave option for new dads and other non-birthing parents. That would only be for them. So it wouldn't be a nondescript parental leave. It would be something specific like Quebec has, where they have uh, paternity leave that is specifically not for the birthing mother. For many who work in the restaurant industry, receiving tips is a perk they've come to count on. In fact, that may be why they do the job in the first place. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency has declared that they will be cracking down on undeclared tips. So we've asked Scott McTaggart, waiter, owner of Fusion Grill. He's also the director of Restaurants Canada to talk about how declaring tips has affected the restaurant industry. And uh, Scott, thanks for taking some time with us this morning. Hey, good morning, fellas. I'm sure you've heard this uh, once or twice in your restaurant career that the CRA is declaring war on servers who don't declare their tips. Is uh, how often do you hear this, Scott? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's an unfortunate, very uh, you know, nobody's uh, happy uh, or to hear of anybody getting a tax bill like that. Gosh, uh, you know, that's uh, that's really rough. But I mean, the reality is, you know, Canadians expect. You know, for everybody to pay their taxes and their fair share of them, and servers, you know, need to declare their tips. You know, we uh, we have a tipping guide uh, that we provide, and uh, you know, we encourage servers to you know keep a log and make sure that they declare them. Well, Scott, I, I mean, uh, this could go a long way in, in helping, uh, I think, to a certain extent, legitimize what, what is otherwise an underappreciated profession and al- allow servers that want to do it long term, uh, maybe the opportunities they haven't otherwise been able to take advantage of, like uh, buying a home. <clears throat> well, without question. And and uh, servers are already there. I mean, it's, it's not in all segments of our industry, but certainly there are professional servers. Uh, here and across Canada that do exactly that. They declare their tips. Uh, it's They use that income to, you know, provide information to the bank to get a mortgage. You know, I mean, it's it's important. Now, Scott, I used to date a bartender, and she'd come home sometimes with just fistfuls of cash, like two, $300. You know, when you really added up what she was making in a year, it was significantly more than, I, than a lot of people, you know, who went to school and then came out of school to have a quote-unquote professional job. But she would not want to have done that job without the tips. How much should be, when, when you say that they really need to declare the tips, um, what, I guess historically, maybe Greg, you would know the answer to this. I'm not touching that part of it with a ten foot pole. I don't know. What this, I haven't served a table in 20 years, but I'm not touching that question. Okay. All right. So, should servers, bartenders, be declaring everything that they take in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, keep a record of it. You know, there's uh, there's just no there's just no you know wiggle room here. I mean, it's uh, I mean uh, we all. Uh, benefit from using the roads we all benefit from you know having a police force we all benefit in our society and we have to contribute to that we all have to contribute to it fairly 
You know, that's that's really the bottom line. And things have changed dramatically, right? In the last couple of decades, Scott, the, the way people pay their bills at restaurants has dramatically changed uh, from predominantly cash back in the late 70s, early 80s to now where it's uh, for a lot of places, it's got to be almost all credit cards or debit cards. Well, that you're absolutely right. I mean, upwards of 90 plus percent of transactions are all in credit cards. And I mean, you know, this is... Uh, uh, another area where you know uh, uh, operators, you know, have to pay, um, you know, the banks, the processors, etc., you know, uh, transaction fees on top of uh, not only the the gratuities but the taxes that we have to collect. Somebody just made an interesting text here, point on text, Scott. Uh, they said, "Why why are tips not looked at as a gift? It is a gift for me." To the server. What do you think of that? Well, uh, I mean, I think that's, you know, a, a, a great idea, but I, I don't think it's going to really float with the CRA. Um, it is considered income. I mean, it's a tradition in our industry, you know, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, the expectation is that people are working for the gratuities. I mean, I was speaking to a colleague just the other day who had been, uh, because of uh, the nature of his business, he has an incredible amount um, of business to attend to in a, in a very short period of time, two-week period of time. So he hires a bunch of staff on a casual basis and was paying them cash. Well, somebody complained because they wanted a T4 to be issued. So he went ahead and, okay, put everybody on payroll, you know, went to the expense of doing this, and then uh, started to have trouble getting cooks and servers because they weren't getting paid the cash for the gig. So, you know, it's a really complicated issue. Scott, and obviously not one we're going to solve in seven minutes on the air with you. Let's uh, talk about this again. It's a question I think we're going to be asking and answering uh, a lot over the next few months here. Well, thanks so much, and uh, uh, feel free to call again. All right, Scott McTaggart, thank you very much, sir. Waiter, owner of Fusion Grill, director of Restaurants Canada. I love reading books, it's fun. I often read them with my Behind the Glass, Jerry, with yet another musical gem. Thank you very much, Jerry. He's playing that because February is I Love to Read Month. And a few of us have managed to spend some time reading to students. Greg, I know you'll be doing some of that uh, this week and next week, right? This week and next. Very much looking forward to uh, heading out uh, on Monday, heading out with one of the Blue Bombers to do some reading. So that'll be kind of fun. Cool. Where are you doing that? Or are you allowed to identify I that? I don't know yet. I know okay. there were eight schools on the list that we were choosing from. So uh, it was kind of like a lottery to see who was going to get the benefit of, of having uh, myself and one of the blue members of the Blue and Gold come out and read. I don't know if you're winning or losing that lottery, but we'll, we'll find out next week. So we were inspired to look at some books that will make your kids want to do more reading. Kathleen Bergen and Chris Hall from McNally Robinson are here to tell us about that. So, uh, Chris, you're our normal pal from McNally Robinson, so good morning to you. I understand, before we forget, the new shop is open now, right? It is open. It opened uh, quietly on Friday about 5.30, I think. That's at uh, the Forks? We decided we were ready, and and we opened, yes, it's at the Forks, uh, (coughs) so it had a pretty strong opening weekend, and should have lots of fun with that. Yeah, the Forks was absolutely packed this weekend. So uh, go out of your way if you need another excuse to go to the Forks. Uh, McNally Robinson has certainly created one there. Now Kathleen is going to tell us about her book picks for young people. 
And Kathleen, thanks for coming by. This is your first visit with us. You've got a rather large assortment of books in front of you there. Tell us about some of the books and some of the reading that's really popular for kids these days. Okay, well, we brought a variety of books for a variety of different age groups. So uh, I guess we'll start with the youngest. We have this book. It's very cute. It just came out. It's called The New Librarian. Oh. (laughs) Okay. Finally, somebody spells it and says it correctly. That's right. And uh, is it a, is that a, a an actual bear I see? That's right. Oh, um, cute! It is about a, a mystery that happens in the library, wherein uh, the librarian seems to have gone missing, and they follow some clues like sticky honey and find um, a new librarian. <laughs> I love <Okay>. it. <laughs> that's so, right. Um, well, c- can you read us like the the first page, yeah, perhaps? Sure, why not? Well, I will we'll play I Love to Read This mine. is like a trailer for the <laughs> uh, for the new librarian. That's right. Okay. It was almost story time. The children were ready. Dee couldn't wait. Isn't it time, she asked, but no one answered. And that's the first page. Oh, well, that's a real tantalizing <laughs> teaser. I want to know the mystery. <laughs> you know, it's funny. As you hold up the book and just as you were talking about it and seeing the, the cute little image, it actually, it's, it's triggering memories of when I was a kid and when my parents would read to me. Uh, how important is it that parents read to their kids? Oh, I think it's very important. It's, uh, it's a bonding activity. It helps kids... Um, use their imaginations and um, it teaches them that reading is really fun and reading is important because it's how you learn stuff. Yeah, it's food for your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, parents who instill that love of reading are doing their, their children a massive favor because, uh, let's face it, um, if you don't know how to read, studying is really difficult. And so if you have a genuine fondness for it, it makes uh, what for a lot of people is the most difficult part of, of school work and studying a little bit more manageable. Uh, Kathleen, I imagine you read books uh, plenty growing up. Oh, I still do. So it, many books. What are your some of your favorites before we move on with what you brought in with you today? Oh, well, when I was a kid, I really liked A Wrinkle in Time, uh, which actually is getting a surge in popularity right now because of the movie that's going to be coming out. Okay. I have not heard about that one. You're nodding your head, Brett. You're familiar. Yeah, it's out next month, actually. Oprah Winfrey is the uh, the lead uh, star of that. Mindy Kaling, also one of the other stars, and uh, I think Reese Witherspoon, too. So, mm-hmm. What do you think of that casting, by the way, as a fan of uh, Wrinkle in Time? Well, it, it looks like it's shaping up to be really good, but uh, of course I'm a little nervous because you never know with book-to-movie adaptations. Yeah. Well, Chris, uh, I'll ask you this. Are movies that are uh, adapted and, and transferred to the big screen, are they are they a, a benefit to, uh, the, to book business? Or are they a hindrance? No, they're very much a benefit. I, I'm always struck by how, uh, because our uh, main store at Grant Park has a movie theater down the way, and, and you can literally see people coming out of movies, coming down to buy the book. It's like they want more, and, and a book does give you more. It's got more detail, and, and it can it can uh, take its time. If you were to truly film a, a regular novel, it would be, well, a miniseries, which which is starting to be produced. But but books just have so much detail, so much more immersion for your imagination. Well, you feel that way about the Harry Potter series, right? Yeah, the, yeah. I, I the way my experience with Harry Potter uh, was kind of weird where I saw the third movie first and then the second movie and then the first movie and then I read the books. Um, so I loved the movies and then when I read the books, they kind of they were sort of like a supplemental experience. So it didn't mm-hmm. take away from my film experience. But then when I read the fourth book, 
and watched the fourth movie, I found I didn't enjoy the movie because it was lacking all of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, it almost inevitably becomes almost like the highlights of the book because it just can't contain as much. And uh, and so yeah, it's uh, um, and uh, when a when a movie's a hit and it's based on a book, we have to make sure we've got enough copies of the book because yeah, people do come looking for it. Well, that's terrific to hear. What else? What else have you got in your uh, bag of goodies, there, Kathleen? Uh, well, I've got uh, "When We Were Alone" by. David Alexander Robertson, he's actually a local author, and this book won the Governor General's Award this year. I thought I oh, recognized wow. the title. When okay. We Were Alone. And what's it about? Well, it is a story about um, residential schools, but it's told in a really um, a really gentle way, in a way that's relatable to kids, so they can um, learn a little bit about the history of Canada um, in a way that appeals to them and that they can understand. Wow, that sounds like a really heavy task for somebody to take on. So good for uh, the author to to find a way to do that and then be awarded for the efforts that go into that. And there's another book on your stack that I want to get to in a moment. It's a book that I gave to a friend of mine, uh, the son of a friend of mine, and he was just bouncing off the walls. He was so excited to receive it. So we'll tell you about that in a moment with Chris Hall and Kathleen Bergen from McNally Robinson. It's I Love to Read Month. With MacLean McGarry on 680 CJOB. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. Jerry just digs up all the, I think he called them gems in the last segment, Brett McGarry. Yeah. Yeah, that's a gem, all right. Reading Rainbow, one of the great programs in the history of PBS, I would suggest. We're talking about reading. We're talking about the influence uh, that it has on, on our children. It is uh, a Love to Read uh, month. And uh, Kathleen Bergen is here, along with Chris Hall from McNally Robinson. The new store is open at the Forks, by the way, if you're looking for just one more reason to head down to the Forks or a reason all by itself. We're talking about books for young people before we uh, broke. And uh, you were about to tell us about a book that Brett bought for one of his favorite small people in his world. Yeah, one of my my friend Kent's child, Elliot, one of his, uh, part of his brood. Uh, say hello to Regan and Amelia as well, but uh, Dogman. That's right, Dogman. It's in its fourth installment already. Oh, it's, there's a fourth one? Well, this is the fourth one. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I didn't know. When did that come out? It came out just after Christmas. <laughs> well, of course then. it did. <laughs> of course there, it did. There's a birthday gift, perhaps, then. <laughs> so a, tell us about Dogman and Cat Kid? Yeah, that's right. Um, so Dogman is a uh, comic book series by Dave Pilkey, um, who wrote Captain Underpants which was also very popular. Yeah. I was going to ask if Captain <laughs> Underpants was in any way a relation to Dogman when right. I saw the cover. So, Although I don't think Captain Underpants makes any cameos in Dogman, unfortunately. Oh, wait for it. It'll happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Dogman is about a dog who is a police officer, um, and he gets into lots of very silly antiques um, trying to be a police officer, but also being a dog. And as far as graphic novels go, Chris, somebody once said to me uh, that that comic books and graphic novels are because uh, I think people kind of maybe frown upon them. Oh, that's not reading. And he said, "But well, hang on, They're, you're just as engaged while you're looking at a comic book if you're paying close attention because it's not like a TV show where the image is just kind of thrown at you. We're you're still absorbed in the artwork and everything on the page. What do you think?" 
Yeah, I think that can be a first impulse, but I, uh, I mean, there's there's an art aspect to it too, like a visual art aspect to it, which we don't look down upon if somebody's looking in our art section at an art book. Um, and so there's a combination of words and images there that's not like anything else, and and I think has its own uh, its own appeal. It's it's uh, maybe not. Um, the place to go to to really learn how to that, do that immersive reading that I talk about, but it's certainly an experience and a and a worthwhile one. Have any of you or either of you got any tips in terms of maybe re-educating yourself, training yourself? Those of us that would like to read more, but maybe have difficulty either because of schedule or because we like shiny things and get distracted <laughs> very easily. <laughs> Well, I, I think of uh, of reading. It's first and foremost a physical act, you, or an inact. <laughs> you don't move. You you sit down and you sit still, and that's not really part of our repertoire anymore. And uh, and so part of of getting back into reading means getting back into sitting still. It's really good for you at that level, uh, being able to sit still for half an hour in a day. Um, but yeah, the um, it takes practice and and some tricks like like turning the big lights off and just leaving the reading light on, so you're kind of, you know, those shiny things are less shiny out there, and leaving your phone in the other room and there's there's lots of things you can try to do. But but I think it's it's a habit that you establish that uh, that helps the most. I think Kathleen, I, I mentioned that we had in uh, grade school USSR uninterrupted sustained silent reading for 15 minutes every day. I was pretty much from all the way from grade one to I think grade five. I don't know if they still do that, but making some specific amount of time every single day has to have a must have to uh, must have a huge uh, benefit. Speaking of turning off <laughs> phones and being focused on the task, I'm teasing you, of course. But uh, carving out a certain amount of time and that same amount of time every day must have a little bit of an impact if you want to get back into reading. That's right. I think it really does. It um, It's like any other habit. It helps to um, build it every day. It makes it less daunting to sit down with a book if you know that you could do it and you've done it. And it also helps... If you get distracted, just set a time limit so that, you know, you know, you have 15 minutes where you're going to sit down and read and not do anything else. And then after that, you can go and get distracted by all your shiny things. Well, I'll just give the advice that a buddy of mine uh, always tells us as he tries to get us to read more. Read books. It's I love to read month, February, and McNallyRobinson.com is the website. Their flagship location at Grant Park and the new location at the Forks, Chris Hall and Kathleen Bergen from McNally Robinson here telling us about Dogman and the new librarian and when we were alone and there's a couple more we didn't even have time to get to. Uh, So go see them in the store and they'll tell you all about all the great stuff that you can get for your kids. It's um, saying that we can't... uh replicate or say ourselves on radio, but it's something that if you look up the, it's not even an acronym, but if you look up the initials F-H-I-T-P, you will, uh, you can uh, know a little bit more about what we're talking about in this next segment, Brett. Yeah, it's a notorious sexist slur aimed at a reporter uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and it was revealed or determined that it was vulgar and offensive, but not a crime. Under the circumstances, this is according to a judge's ruling yesterday. Provincial Court Judge Colin Flynn dismissed the single charge against 28-year-old Justin Penton of causing a public disturbance. Penton acknowledged he yelled a phrase commonly abbreviated to FHRITP at NTV reporter Heather Gillis last April as she taped an interview outside the St. John's dump. 
But Flynn ruled the incident part of a crass phenomenon that has plagued journalists in the United States and Canada since it started as an online prank back in 2014 already. Mm. Four years ago, uh, did not meet legal precedents for interfering with the public peace. So, last night on the shift with Drex, Drex spoke with City News reporter Anna Vlakos about a similar incident that happened to her. But first, he shared this example of a reporter who confronted a pair of offenders. In fact, Shauna Hunt, uh, who was a City News reporter in Toronto as well, uh, was one of the first journalists to really start calling people out on doing this. Have a listen to this. 2-1 is better than... Hey. And, uh, yeah. Do you know that guy? No. Um, we got so were you guys wait? Hold on, hold on. Were you guys waiting around to see if you could F her in the pee me live on TV? Yes. Is that what you were waiting? Not you, but yes. You were, seriously? Yes. Can I ask why you would want to do something like that? Uh, I feel like it's Cause he's going to shit, quite substantial. Ready. No, seriously. Why? I mean, it's a disgusting thing to say. It's degrading to women. And but you would humili- you're going to do it. You would humiliate me on live television? Not you. No, because you would put my life, my my job on the line. Why would I risk Because, it? well, because I would have to, you know, respond Are to you. Are you actually filming this? Well, because, you know what, I'm yeah, sick yeah. of this. I get this every single day, ten times a day by rude guys like I'm you. I'm sick of it. But, I mean, it's actually, like, this it's is how you... I don't care what Treat. you say. No, it has okay. nothing to do with you. It has everything to do uh, with when, else. when you talk into my microphone and say that into my camera to viewers at the station I work at, it is disrespectful and degrading I don't to care. me. It's okay, why is it so funny, though? Why is it so it funny? It is hilarious. Why? We're not the only people. It happened in England. Do you know that it's it, old? It's, it's really not funny. It's been like a year. It's been longer than You're that. lucky there's not a f***ing vibrator in here, like in England, because it happened all the time. It's f***ing amazing. I respect it. If your mom saw you talk oh, like my mom would die laughing eventually. Really? She would. Okay, all right. My mom would die laughing. Okay, enough of that. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there are wankers all around us. And there they are right there talking to Shauna Hunt. A snapshot of the wankerdom that goes on in this country of idiots thinking they can run up behind people uh, doing their jobs and scream things at them. I, I played uh, Orna uh, Vlakos's audio before. This is her. This is when it happened to her. Little Italy can expect some big headaches this summer. Sorry. This summer. Yeah, that is uh, Anna Vlakos, and she's up late for us in Toronto tonight. Now, you've seen the ruling. I, I know you're pretty steamed about what the judge here says is not really a nuisance, but I would imagine uh, in your shoes, while you're trying to do your job, it would be quite a nuisance, yeah? It was more than a nuisance. It was. Um, it, made me, it made me very angry, upset. I couldn't believe that someone could do something so vulgar. I, I remember the incident like it was yesterday. Uh, you know, I was uh, doing my live report. It happened live. It was late at night. I was five months pregnant. And I know people say, you know, just because you're pregnant doesn't make it worse. But the fact of the matter is I felt vulnerable being pregnant. You know, if you have that protective instinct for your child mm. and you have someone creeping over you while you're going live and saying effort right in the pee. Um, it was upsetting. It was shocking. And I'm really surprised that a judge would say that, especially in light of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. I mean, this is harassment. So, you know, maybe it's a lighter form than some people might think. But so what? Reporters are less than everybody else. And we don't have that same type of treatment that we shouldn't be treated with respect when we're on the job.
It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm really surprised the judge made that decision. Yeah, this is, and this seems to be part of the attitude too, is people are like, oh, it's harmless. Someone's just running up behind you. And I always say, well, you know, no one's going to come to your job and do that to you. Why would you do that to somebody else? Well, that's exactly it. I just want to do my job. So when someone comes up to me and says, effort in the P, how is that allowing me to do my job? If I'm going live, whatever message I'm saying to you is lost. I'm trying to do my story. So I ended up getting tweets all night from people saying, talking about the effort and the P. Do you think they even remembered what the story was about? Yeah. It was all, it all became because of, you know, what this person said. And it's not allowing me to do my job. And it's not okay for someone to be able to come up to you at any time, no matter where you are, no matter what job you are doing, and say effort and the P. If, mm. if I was working at a grocery store, and someone suddenly came up to me and said, Afro and the P, you think people wouldn't be, oh my gosh, what's up with that? How, how could you say that? That's so disrespectful. Why is it okay when I'm a reporter doing my job? People seem to think, oh, it's just a joke. Well, if the person that is the target doesn't feel it's a joke and feels violated or upset in any way, and that is harassment. You're mm. not allowed, to, you're not letting me do my job. You're not allowing me to feel, in some cases, safe. I was working late at night. I don't know what this guy was going to do next. You know, you don't know what people are thinking. If you have, you know, that much, um, uh, I don't know, uh, brass to come up to me and just say, hey, effort in the P, what what could happen next? It's late at night. And now, now what reporters have no rights now, they're not going to be able, they're going to feel like, oh, so anybody can say anything they want now. And there's going to be no repercussions. Uh, it's interesting. You, you make a good point there is that, you know, this is a stranger coming up to uh, another person who's essentially a stranger and screaming something. Now, if you have a relationship with somebody or a friendship with somebody, I, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, all of us have made vulgar jokes with our friends, but we have a relationship with those particular people that we've built over time. This is a situation where a stranger is going up to a stranger and just screaming something out. So do you think we've just lost sort of uh, a, a little bit of, you know, what's appropriate when we're in public and what's appropriate when we're not? Well, I think it is. I think I think people are crossing the line. And when a judge says it's okay, then people can think then they can do it and get away with it. That's the thing. I mean, how, how can you say the most vulgar thing to a woman and no reporter and no woman wants to be told that? I'm sorry. Why do people think it's funny? I have no idea. It's not funny. But yeah, where where has the respect come? Where has where's the class? Yeah. What has what has become a society now that they think they can just say that? And I'm real. That's why I'm really surprised. The judge says, yeah, it's just it's, I don't know exactly what the w judge's words were exactly, but for him to dismiss it and say it's okay and it's no big deal, that speaks volumes you know, we've come to a point where people can actually say effort in the P to a person, to a woman trying to do her job and there's no repercussions. And the judge seems to say, yeah, that's fine. In the time. No, it's not fine. That's in a conversation that was heard overnight on 680 CJOB and across uh, the country with on the shift with Drex speaking with city news reporter on Vlakos. Once again, this notorious slur aimed at a reporter in St. John's, Newfoundland, deemed vulgar and offensive, but not a crime under the circumstances. Now,
Now, Brett, I think there's an interpretation or a belief that this uh, slander and this uh, this saying has only been aimed at women. Not the, not true at all. No, it's not. And I uh, just to give you some context it's to, to where this started. Back in 2014, as mentioned earlier in our preamble, there is a, this was an online prank. The first video, there was a video circulating saying, look at what this reporter did. And it was uh, anchor throwing to a reporter for a live hit. And this reporter didn't realize that he was being broadcast live. So he's getting his, he's fumbling with his earpiece and he's got his microphone in his hand. And he says, he's talking about this woman and he proceeds to say, I would. And then he says the, the slur. And the initial thought was that this actually happened. And then it took some some sleuth, some Google foo to realize, no, this was just a prank. It was made by some filmmaker in New Jersey, I think. And then there was a follow-up video of a different guy who grabbed, ran up and grabbed a microphone from a reporter. She's doing a hit. He ran up, grabbed the mic, stood in front of the camera, and said it. You may have, and he was wearing a black hoodie. He had black, uh, black sunglasses, and he had a goatee. And uh, there was a third one where he was interviewed by someone. And I remember him, I think it was sitting on my front porch, cracked a beer, and blah. And he proceeds to say that. So I, I remember doing all sorts of research on this and found that it was all made by the same guy. And I, I thought in that context, oh, it's just online goofery. It's a Tom Green sort of prank, right? Yeah. That that something that's uh, that's fictitious, made up by someone's imagination to be funny and to to garner clicks on YouTube or what yeah. have you, right? So in that context, I thought, well, this is funny, but mm-hmm. this is going to have real world cascading ramifications. And sure enough, it has been a problem. Almost every reporter I know, female or male has been, had this happen to them at least once. Uh, and in the case, uh, the context of what we heard here, this happens a lot. I personally think if you are going to do that, it should be a crime because it's it's harassment, as she pointed out. And if you go up and grab their microphone, then you're that's basically you're assaulting them. It's physical assault, right? And so the, the lines uh, should be more blurry on that, right? Uh, the fact that someone is assaulting you verbally and physically um, should be treated much more similarly than maybe they are at this point in time. We have a texter who says, let's keep taking those ignorant, immature people to court who harass people verbally like that. Make them do something about it. Yeah, they need to. I think that this needs to change. Thankfully, this was a trend in 2014. It still persists, but they even saw a, a graph on Google search history, and it peaked in September of 2014, people looking for that particular phrase, and then it plummeted after that. So hopefully this is a trend and a prank that will go where it needs to go, which is in six feet under, quite frankly. Uh, it was amusing for its initial purpose, and that's it. And even then, you would, you could argue that it's not. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Vidal, I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. And then-